Philippians chapter 2. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. While you're doing that, um, would you just do something for me? Um, I get to have uh, the honor of having many conversations with each one of you throughout the weeks and in the months. And uh, one resounding thing that comes from our young families is the nervousness they feel when their kids are a bit jittery and loud and, and mobile. Uh, would you just encourage our young families today by saying amen that you are super glad they're in service with us and that their noise and their jitteriness doesn't bother you. Uh, we praise the Lord for them. They're a blessing. And so, um, yeah, remember that, young families, when you're wrestling with your kids. This church is glad your kids are here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. We began this text last week. We made it all the way through verse 25, and hopefully today we'll finish the rest of the chapter. This passage, in my estimation, is a unique passage. I hope you remember from last week, we approached this text talking about the power of a godly example, and that we're supposed to not only leave godly examples, because people watch us all the time, but we're also to look for seek out and cling to those godly examples that we find. That, I think, is the point of this last passage mentioning a man named Epaphroditus here at the end of chapter 2 of Philippians. The technical point of this text is found in verse 25 and verse 29. Paul's saying, I'm sending this guy, verse 29, so you should receive him. That's the technical reason for this passage being put into this letter and put into the location of this letter. But that's not all that Paul has to say about this man or in this portion of Philippians chapter 2. He also commends this man and recommends this man and gives a glowing reference of this man, which forces us to realize that it's not just a send-receive structure of the text. There's more going on here. And what is that, what is that more? We asked last week, specifically, how does all of this commendation of Epaphroditus spur us on to have faith in Christ? Or to trust Christ, grow in grace, treasure Christ? On the surface, it looks like we're just boasting up and propping up a fellow brother. So what's the reason for Paul's writing? And why did he put it here in this letter? Why did God allow him to talk about Epaphroditus and wedge it in to this section like he has? Well, as I said, I think it's for the example that Epaphroditus is leaving for us. He is fulfilling all that Paul has written about in chapter 2, specifically verses 3 and 4 and 5 through 11 and verses 14. Uh, this attitude, verses 12 and 13 as well, this attitude of a Christian, this pursuit of unity, this selfless Christ-like humility. We find all of these things uh, in Epaphroditus' life here, as Paul mentions him. He is the practical picture of what Paul has been instructing the church to be since chapter 2, verse 1. And so Paul's not just giving these lofty theological points and thoughts. He's also wanting to give you a, a flesh and bone and blood, tangible example. And so he writes and he says, look at Epaphroditus. 
Here's an example of what Christ can do to the human heart. Remember last week, it's less about Epaphroditus and more about the grace and the power of Christ to transform us to be like Christ, to be godly, unless we're tempted to think that's not possible because after all, we still fail and fall all the time. Here is a flesh and blood example that it is possible. That the power of the Gospel, the power of Christ, actually is strong enough to allow us the privilege in this life to reflect and represent Jesus to the world. The enemy wants you and I to think that that's far beyond us. And the enemy wants you to believe the lie that your flesh is too strong. And that you're just not growing fast enough. You're just not godly enough. You're just not holy enough to make an impact. To adequately or rightly represent Christ. But the gospel is much more powerful than the strength of our flesh. And the lies of the enemy are just that lies. They hold no truth. And Christ can affect the human life and the human heart in such powerful ways that we go from rebellious enemies to His ambassadors in this world, imperfect as we may be. Epaphroditus is a strong, good reminder of the possibility of the grace of Christ transforming us to be like Christ. So we picked up in verse 25 last week. And Paul mentioned these five things about Epaphroditus that we looked at each individually. He begins with this um, kind of crowning description or fundamental foundational description of Epaphroditus. He calls him my brother. Remember, the Bible doesn't use this term brother or sister in Christ. It doesn't use it lightly. It implies great honor, great privilege, great expectation, great responsibility. It's the very bedrock for everything else in the entire text that defines Epaphroditus. The only reason he can be described as a worker or a soldier or a messenger or a minister or any of the other things that we're going to look at is because he is first a brother. He first belongs to God. He's in the family. As I said last week, where God is, this man belongs. Where the people of God are, this man belongs. He's not on the outside of God's family. He's on the inside of God's family. And so all these other things are therefore possible. It's a good reminder and starting point and lesson for us that unless you belong to Christ, none of these other things will be possible for you. Hebrews chapter 11, I believe it's verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because whoever would draw near to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Unless you're first united to God through Christ, you will not live a God-honoring, Christ-like life. You may take up some godly qualities for a temporary season and time. But union with Christ is what births these things. Not mere willpower. Not gritting the teeth. And not pushing through adversity. Union with Christ is what births godly living. And we cannot get such things out of order. So, if you're not first saved, that's what needs to be primary in your heart and mind this morning. If you are saved, then look at the privileged possibility and honor of godly living. Paul calls him a fellow worker 
in verse 25, which implies effort, discipline, diligence, dedication. He's not a lazy man when it comes to the things of God. He's not lazy when it comes to the kingdom of God. He's actively putting forth stringent effort. He's also described as a soldier. We looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's understanding of a soldier at the time was one whose aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He doesn't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Spiritually speaking, he's not caught up in worldly things. He's not spending his time learning worldly things. He's enamored with the things of God. His aim is to please his master, his king, his general. He's described as a messenger. Your messenger. Sent with the message of the church to Paul. Specifically sent with the message of the gospel. He can't help but speak the gospel. Indeed, he can't speak anything else without speaking the gospel. It bursts forth from his lips effortlessly. He's a minister, Paul says. A minister to my need. He shows deep, genuine, personal soul care. Looking out for the spiritual well-being of others. These five things combined describe Epaphroditus as a man who lives for Christ. That's the first thing we looked at last week from verse 25. He's a man who lives for Christ because you can't live for yourself and these things simultaneously be true. If these things are to be true in our lives, collectively true in our lives, it it requires sacrifice, self-sacrifice. It requires exalting Christ and elevating the agenda of Christ in your life over your own agenda, your own purposes and your own desires. He is a man who lives for the Lord. Now we pick up this morning after that quick recap in verse 26. Let's read first, verse 25 through 30. We'll come back to verse 26 and continue walking through the text. Verse 25, Paul writes, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Verse 26. How does Epaphroditus, this passage, drive us to Christ? It's through his example, uh, his Christ-like example. Verse 26. Epaphroditus is a man who loves like Christ. Now, if you're following through, if you're taking notes, last week was point number one. So I begin this week with point number two. He loves like Christ. Christ. We see that in the word longing. He has been longing 
for you all. It's a word that implies deep, even groaning, even painful affection. Paul has used a similar phrase in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Deep within myself, there's this unquenchable yearning. Unquenchable longing for you. Now we know that we don't long for those who have no meaning to us. We don't long for those who are strangers to us. We long for those that we love. We long for those that love us. In other words, from a Christian perspective, we long for those that we're bound to. That implies relationship. In case you're unaware, the Christian faith is an intensely relational faith. Primarily, and it begins with, our relationship with God through Christ. And then the Bible says that expresses itself primarily in our relationships with each other. And the Christian faith is so intensely relational, it's concerned with the relationship we have with the unbelieving world. A relationship of gospel witness. When you long for somebody, you long for someone you have a deep personal relationship with, someone you're bound to, someone that the Bible describes that you've become one with. <coughs> Jamie and I had the privilege of going to, to Denver at the beginning of this summer, the first week in June, and I was sharing this a little bit with the uh, group on Wednesday night. We had the privilege of going to meet our new church planner and his wife and, and kind of see where the church plan is happening in Denver and, and then also enjoy some time together. Um, many of you know, young married couples with kids don't get much time together. And so we took advantage of that. She jumped in with me and we flew to Denver. And we were looking forward to being able to eat a meal at our own pace. And have ice cream when we wanted and go to bed when we wanted and, and all those lovely things uh, that we took for granted when we were first married. Little less than four hours into the trip and I was already talking about how much I missed our girls. I longed for them. Now Jamie, is a, she's a terrific mother. She was gone this weekend and um, long story short, our house can't survive without her. It was a disaster. We made it. We're alive, but we need her. She's a terrific mother, and yet she was on that trip saying, we've been together less than four hours. Let's not talk about the girls for just a little bit. Let's just be us, and I'm not with them 24-7 like she is, and so I'm talking about the girls, and we're doing this, and I'm like, oh, Emberly would love this, or Adeline would enjoy that, on and on and on and on. I was longing for our girls. By the end of the week, Jamie was with me and she was thinking, how can we get home fast enough to be with the girls? Let's skip lunch. Let's skip dinner. Let's just drive straight home. Get the girls in our arms because we miss them. And we miss them because we love them. And our love couldn't be contained. We talked about them. We longed for them. By the end of the week, it was even somewhat painful to be without them. We were groaning. For them. That seems to be implied here with Epaphroditus. He longs for this church. In fact, the, the, the very 
reason or very point of Paul writing this shows us how much he's longing for this church. It's almost as if Paul's writing to the Philippian believers saying, he won't stop talking about you. It's no secret he's longing for you. It's no secret he's groaning for you. He talks about working for you. He talks about thinking about you. He talks about praying for you. He talks about serving you. He talks about getting back to you. He talks about his relationships with you. He laughs about you. He cries for you. He is a man deeply in love with you. Something I don't think this church was ignorant of. They trusted Epaphroditus enough to send him with the gift, likely with money, to Paul and to trust him with that. They knew He loved them and they loved Him. Verse 28, they're going to rejoice at seeing Him again. There's no love loss between the two. But in case they're forgetting just how much Epaphroditus loves them, Paul wants them to know, I'm speaking on his behalf. He is longing for you. Now notice his longing in verse 26 is for you all. A profound statement when we really begin to think on it and meditate on it. He longs for every last one of them. He's not bound to some group. He's not longing just for some faction of the church, some clique of the church, some section of the church, or just those He gets along with. He longs for every last one of them. Not one person is left out. I long for you all as one body. You ever wonder why? why? Why can one person, why does one person long for a whole group of people? Because God has designed it that His church together collectively is life-giving. God's people find life with each other. God's people find meaning with each other and purpose with each other and comfort together and joy together and strength together. But they only do so if they're in it collectively. They only do so if they exist as one, if there's not divided factions in them. And they only exist together as one if, if they long for each other as one. Epaphroditus isn't picking and choosing who he cares about here. He loves every last one of them. We see two things here that exemplify the love of Christ from Epaphroditus. Number one, what he loves. And number two, how he loves. And what he loves is the whole church. The Bible tells us that's what it means to be a Christian. In John chapter 13, verse 35, you've heard me share this over and over with you. Jesus says, they will know that you're my disciples by what? The love you have for one another. And the reason that's the case is because 1 John chapter 4, God is love. And if you love your brothers, it's because you know the love of God. But if you don't know, if you don't love your brothers, then it's proof you don't know the love of God. Because God's love is in this that He sent His only Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to die in our place, 
And to do so, not because we loved Him first, but because He loved us first. And in that is love. And if you know that love, 1 John 4 says, then you will show that love by loving God's people. Epaphroditus reminds us what Christ loves. And Christ loves His church. He loves His bride with an eternal passion that's unquenchable. He loves His bride so much that He died for her. He loves His bride so much that He washes her with His Word. He loves His bride so much that He said, I'm going to prepare a place for her that where I am she may be also. He loves His bride so much that He says, one day I'm going to come back and gather her to Myself. There's no such thing in the New Testament as professing Christian faith and not loving God's church. The notion that one can belong to God and despise His people is false. To love like Christ is to love what Christ loves. God's church must love God's church like God loves His church. But the second way we see Christ's love exemplified by this man is in how He loves. And I go back to the fact that He loves every one of them. No one is left out. No one is allowed to exist on the fringes. No one's allowed to just be a mere acquaintance. Everyone is known. Everyone is drawn in. Everyone is shown affection. You know, I I, uh, resonate with Paul's statement in chapter 3, verse 1. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. That's how I feel when I talk about our love for each other. I, I feel like a broken record, especially in Philippians. Because so much of the letter has been about church unity and so much of the letter has been about loving one another and genuine, biblical, real, honest, authentic kind of love. And when I sit down each week and I study each passage and I think, man, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to some of the same subjects, I think of this verse. Well, that doesn't bother me and it's safe for you. The reason I think love is referenced among God's people in the Scriptures so much is because it's a chief hallmark of a healthy church. A church's success and faithfulness to Christ isn't measured by her activity. It isn't measured by her programs, her busyness, her budget, not even her attendance. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old Welsh preacher, who said we need to get the notion of numbers out of our heads. Faithfulness to Christ is the standard of success of a church. But faithfulness to Christ is the measurement for a healthy church. A healthy church is a church that genuinely loves Christ and genuinely loves each other. It's not a church that's busting at the seams. It's not a church that's super busy. It's not a church... With a whole lot of money. It's a church that genuinely loves each other. And in that love, 
makes the gospel beautiful. Makes the gospel credible. Makes the gospel attractive. And so to repeat that is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. And that's where we're at today. Epaphroditus is a man who longs for this entire church. He loves what Christ loves. He loves how Christ loves. And that's the example you and I are to follow. Love the church collectively and love the church individually. As imperfect as she may be collectively, and as difficult as she may be individually. Love the church. Because that's the expression of Christ in this world. What a tremendous honor you and I have. To show the world the love of Christ by the way that we care for our brothers and sisters. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, John implies that. He says, no one has ever seen God. If you love one another, God abides in you. And His love is manifest in you. The world sees the tangible nature of Christ through our tangible love for each other. And let's just be honest, we often need that, don't we? We often need physical expressions of Christ's love. Because there's no shortage of heartache among us. There's no shortage of trial or temptation or failure or fear of the future or fear of the unknown or or whatever else. And if we're a people who bite and devour each other, if we're a pack of dogs that nip at each other, nobody's edified by that. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's the failure to overcome temptation, the struggle with the same sort of sin over and over and over, confusion about God's Word, fear of persecution and opposition, whatever it may be, we often need physical representations of the love of Christ. And the great benefit of the Gospel converting our hearts is that you and I, like our brother Epaphroditus, get to be that physical, tangible representation of Christ to each other. I can think of few things more enjoyable to my heart than to be the expression of Christ's love to a hurting brother or sister. Pastorally speaking, no pastor likes conflict, no pastor likes complaints, but I don't know of a single godly pastor who despises loving his flock when they need Christ's love the most. When I'm in those situations, and I thank God that I get to be a part of those situations, I think of Jesus saying to the disciples in John chapter 4, when He's been ministering to the woman at the well, And they go to get him food and they come back and they ask him, why aren't you eating? You need to eat. And he says, I have food you don't know about. I think that's how God's people feel when they get to be the love of Christ to one another when one another needs the love of Christ in a physical, tangible, visible kind of expression. Our souls get satisfied in ways that our bellies never do. 
I have strayed far from where I intended to go. So let's come back to verse 26. Epaphroditus is a man that gets to uh, love like Christ. He reminds us of the great privilege of being able to love like Christ. That being saved and captivated by Christ changes us to where we can love like Christ. But also in verse 26, he's a man who cares like Christ. Now love and care go hand in hand. Especially in the fullest of sense. You really can't have one without the other. And yet, they are different things. And I think in this text, they can be uh, highlighted differently. Verse 26 tells us that Epaphroditus has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, I don't pride myself on my logic or my reasoning, but this is a confusing turn of events to me. Usually you're distressed because you're ill. And usually the people who hear that you're ill are distressed. But Epaphroditus is distressed because they heard he was ill. It's a, a strange expression that I think can only be explained by the fact that he cares so deeply for this people he doesn't want them to fret, fear, or worry. When Epaphroditus is ill, in fact, Paul tells us in, in verse 27, he was even near death. Perhaps in his illness or, or recently after he recovered, his thoughts turned to this church. All we're told is they heard he was ill. Perhaps they thought he was dead. Perhaps they thought he was dying. Obviously, something about them hearing he was ill had a negative effect to the point that it bothered Epaphroditus. He was distressed because they heard he was ill. That's only possible if their spiritual good and their spiritual well-being is of his utmost desire and priority. If he didn't care about these people, then who cares if they know he's sick? But he knows that they know he was sick. And that bothers him. He cares so much about this church that he desires no burden to be placed upon them. No grief to set them back. No distractions to take root in their assembly, in their body. His care for them runs so deep that even at the end of his life, he's thinking of them. To me, that seems to exemplify verse 3 of chapter 2. In humility, counting others more significant than yourself. I think it exemplifies verse 4, looking out for the interest of others over the interest of yourself. I think it exemplifies the care that Christ has for His people. A sacrificial kind of care. A selfless kind of care that is constantly thinking about the well-being of someone else. We are a people who live each day looking out for ourselves. We live in a world that tells us to do that. To get yours and to look out for number one and do what makes you happy and do what you think is right and do what makes you feel good. And here, 
is a bright and convicting example of someone that says, no, my life isn't mine. It's Christ's. And if it's Christ, then it's lived in service to others. He cares about this church. This church isn't there to serve His agenda. This church isn't there to meet His needs, to make Him comfortable, to follow His preferences. Rather, it appears that He is there for this church. In genuine love, desiring their spiritual prospering. I think it's a wonderful testimony, as I've already shared. A wonderful testimony that the power of the Gospel can actually change our hearts so that the cares of Christ become our cares. The loves of Christ become our loves. That our longings can be reoriented. That our hard, sinful hearts can be changed by the Gospel to actually love what is good. You think about the context, just the situation here. We have a young church in a Roman colony, all of them coming from pagan, Gentile backgrounds, many of them coming from a rough background like the Philippian jailer, surrounded by a society and culture that thinks they're ridiculous because of their faith, pushes them away because of their faith, ostracizes them because of their faith, and yet this new church, this church that's been in existence for just a few short years, continues to rally together, to commit to each other, to love each other, and to care for each other. Care for each other genuinely and deeply. What in the world could explain that except the Gospel of Christ converting a soul? To care for God's people in such a way to be distressed over them, burdened over their burdens, to weep with them when they weep, can only be explained by the fact that the love of God occupies your soul. Epaphroditus is gaining no social points by caring for these people. It's not advantageous for his business affairs. It's not making him popular or granting him a stellar reputation in the eyes of the world. It actually involves much sacrifice and much resistance and much ridicule. In fact, he's friends with a guy who's in prison for such a faith. And yet he cares. And he loves. And he does so because the power of the grace of God, that transforming grace of Christ, that changes our desires and our priorities and our perspective, changes our motives and our conduct and our language. It's comprehensive in its effect. We look to this brother and we 
come to find that true joy and true fulfillment can be found in caring for a whole group of people. As imperfect as they may be. Sacrificial care is actually worth it. Resisting our desires and the temptations of our flesh and the lies of the world is actually rewarding. That to muster up every ounce of grace and strength in our souls to put the needs of one another before our own needs is actually beneficial. It's actually joyful. Epaphroditus is a man who cares like Christ. Number four, he supports like Christ. Verse 27, he supports like Christ. It's no light matter in my estimation that Paul puts this man in the same section, same breath as Timothy. I think if you read through the New Testament, you'll find Paul thinks of no one higher than Timothy. And yet in the same breath, Epaphroditus is mentioned with Timothy. And it's quite clear from the text that Paul has grown to love this man. In fact, he's grown somewhat dependent upon this man. Chapter 4, verse 18, Epaphroditus brings the gift that leads to Paul being well supplied. Verse 25 of chapter 2, he's described as a minister to his need. Verse 28, Paul injects this unique phrase. He wants to send Timothy to them so that they can rejoice and he be less anxious. There's something about the separation between Epaphroditus and this church that is gnawed at Paul. He realizes they belong together. Notice also verse 27. He says when God has mercy on Epaphroditus by not letting him die, He has mercy on the Apostle also. Why? Paul describes in verse 27 the death of Epaphroditus as sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's not just being loose with his words here. He's not just expressing such love for this man because he's a brother in Christ. Paul can love a brother or sister without commending them in such ways as he has here in this passage. And he's certainly not expressing this kind of love and commitment to Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus brought him money or flattered him. Paul despised flattery and he didn't think much more of money either. What's the reason that leads Paul to meet this man and develop a sincere, deep love for him? It's because Epaphroditus was the support of Christ that Paul needed most. He was the support of Christ that Paul needed to experience. This super apostle who's locked down in a prison cell. He too needed a tangible expression of the support and care of Jesus. 
It wasn't because of his benefits of association with Epaphroditus. It was because he saw Epaphroditus as a gift of grace from the hand of God. Because this man was willing to stick it out with Paul, bear him up, strengthen his faith, bless him with encouragement, so that he wouldn't falter. He even supported this apostle to his own detriment. Guilty by association. Also, getting sick by being there. A flesh and blood picture though of the support of Jesus to a hurting brother. You see, Christ isn't physically present with us. We can't reach out and touch Him. We don't hear His voice. We don't feel the warmth of His touch. Not yet. But His people are present. And He has ordained that it's through the efforts of His people that He will continue to to do His work on earth. So when a brother or a sister needs encouragement, will Christ show up physically? No, He'll send His children to minister to them. When the church is hurting, He'll send His people to strengthen them. Who would strengthen God's people? If not us, who would strengthen a hurting brother or sister if not us? When our faith totters or our circumstances are tough or we're tempted to doubt God's favor in Christ. Who will be the reflection of the love of God that bolsters our faith? Who will be the ones that hold up our arms when they're getting tired of doing the work of the Lord? When our souls go through the night or the winter or the drought and we're spiritually famished, who's going to dip into the spring of living water and refresh our souls? Christ has decided that it will be His people that do such things. You and I have the privilege to be the support of Christ to one another. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, to be His ambassadors. To be His hands and feet. Showing His love and His care in this world. Standing in His name for those who desperately need His affection. Well, fifthly, verses 29 and 30, Epaphroditus is a man who works for Christ. Paul tells this church to receive Him in the Lord And to do so with all joy. That means great rejoicing. Emphatic rejoicing. Celebration. And to honor such men. We're not told what that honor would look like. But such men, like Epaphroditus, 
are to be honored. Why? Verse 30. For or because he nearly died for the work of Christ. A selfless commitment to Jesus. Willing to risk his own self for the agenda of the Lord. Paul says in verse 30, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This, these, there, there's two things, several things that could be mentioned from verse 30, but two specifically right now. He was risking his life to complete what was lacking in the service of this church to Paul. Now, that's not a chastisement. There's not, not as if Paul is writing to them saying, hey, thanks for the gift, but the gift wasn't good enough. In chapter 4, verse 18, he says, I've received your gift. I'm well supplied. Thank you. So it's not as if the gift was lacking. More so, we should read it, if your gift was lacking, lacking, if there was any lack in your gift, Epaphroditus more than made up for it. He didn't just do the bare minimum. He didn't just show up, drop the gift off, relay a message and leave. He stuck around. He invested. He spent his time in a prison cell with a prisoner. Willing to lay aside some of his liberty so that he might bless me and encourage me on your behalf. There's not a lack in your gift, but if there was any lacking, he more than made up for it. Why? Why would this man go above and beyond? Why go the extra mile to show care to this apostle on behalf of this church? It's because Paul describes this work as the work of Christ Himself. It is the work of Christ for the church to care for the people of God who are hurting. It is the work of Christ for the church of God to care for each other. Epaphroditus isn't going the extra mile. He's not going above and beyond to grant this church a good reputation. And he's not going above and beyond to grant himself a good reputation that maybe just perhaps if I network with Paul here and impress him, then I'll get all these speaking engagements and all this popularity and all these book deals and etc., etc., etc. He is going above and beyond, going the extra mile to care for Paul because Epaphroditus knows this is the work of Christ. I work for Christ. This is the ministry I'm called to. This honors my Lord. This furthers His reputation. This encourages a brother for whom Christ died. How committed is Epaphroditus to that mission? He risks his life. Nearly dies. It seems as if, we don't really know his illness, but it seems as if he contracted his illness because he stuck around. That perhaps if he would have went back earlier, he would have avoided his illness. Perhaps even if he would have left and sought care, he could have been treated for his illness. But his health was secondary to honoring the calling of Christ upon his life. 
He's a man who gives everything that Christ may be honored and pleased. What a resounding example of devotion. No wonder Paul calls him a fellow worker, fellow soldier. He's committed to his king. A devoted servant of the Lord. No halfway commitment with Epaphroditus. He's all in. We're too often tempted to think about the benefit that Christ affords us. So we talked about on Wednesday night, we kind of act like the Jewish people in the day of Jesus. Following Him around from wilderness to wilderness, trying to get a sign, trying to be fed, trying to get what we can out of Him. What a convicting picture here of a brother who says instead my life is to serve Jesus, not Jesus to serve me. My life is to serve a brother, not for a brother to serve me. My life is to serve a church, not for a church to serve me. That, that brothers and sisters, is not a wasted life. It's not a pointless life. It's not a ruined life or a wrecked life. That's what Jesus calls an abundant life. And He tells us why in Matthew 10. Because those who will lose their lives for My sake will find it. If your life is swallowed up in the mission of Christ, in the name of Christ, for the agenda and glory of Christ, you haven't lost anything. You've gained everything. Greater purpose, greater meaning, greater joy, greater eternity. It's rarely the case that God's people are overspent for Christ. And typically, in my experience, when a brother or sister is struggling in their faith, struggling with purpose and meaning, struggling with the church, it's because they aren't working for Christ. Here's an example of the joys of getting to do the work of Christ. Even if it costs us our life. It's no wonder Paul says to this church, you should receive Him with all joy. He is a shining example of what Christ does in the heart. So what does this text mean for you and I? It means that we should be these kinds of examples. We should look for these kinds of examples. That we should let and pray and ask God to have His full effect upon our hearts. To let His Word have His full effect upon our hearts. That every ounce of our conduct, our behavior, our thinking, our speaking, our desires should be brought into submission to Him. We should lock arms so that such things would be accomplished within us. Helping each other. Exemplify Christ. You know the best way to do that? Is when a brother or sister does exemplify Christ to you. You thank them for it and tell them. How often do we benefit from our brothers and sisters and they never know it? 
we should also take time to reflect on the joy that comes with being able to reflect Christ to one another. The immense privilege of being able to be the expression and manifestation of Christ to one another. There's no greater calling. Your brothers and sisters that sit around you this morning, they have needs. Every one of them. They all have needs in their life that are beyond the wisdom of their pastor. Complexities in their life that are beyond the wisdom of this church collectively. And I've learned by the grace of God that often what people need is not answers to fix a problem. They need the presence of the love of the Lord. And that sometimes just loving on them, lavishing goodness on them, showing them grace, sitting down and spending time with them is the best form of encouragement. But as we go back to the very beginning points of this sermon this morning, that can't happen without relationship first. Build relationships with one another. For the sake of Christ, build relationships with one another. For the beauty and the sake of the Gospel, Build relationships with one another. And more importantly, make sure you have a relationship with Christ. Only brothers and sisters can have this kind of divine existence together. If you're not a brother or sister, if you don't belong to the family of God, if you find out just today, I'm on the outside of the family of God. None of these things are true for me. Guess what? God is merciful and He says still today, behold, today is the day of salvation. You can be saved. Father, we don't just want to be good people. We don't just want to have good morals or do good things or be good citizens. We want to be people who reflect You. We want to be people who exemplify You. We want to be people who minister to one another in Your name, with Your character, in Your conduct. We know, Lord, that there's this dual reality of our faith. Your Word calls us to believe and it calls us to act. But we must believe before we act. And if we act before we believe, then we are in deep trouble, even with eternal consequences. Help us to have our priorities right, our understanding right. Help us to believe before we act. But help us not to neglect the fact that we ought to act and we ought to be certain kinds of people. We ought to be bringing our lives to submission to Your Word and submission to Your Spirit and submission to Your Lordship. Our church should be submitted, submitted to You as our head. That faith is a, a, an internal spiritual believing and, and trusting, but it also requires effort. It, it leads to movement. It's an oxymoron to say we have faith in You and not act upon Your promises. Help us find and strike the right balance, Lord. To believe and then act. And to act in Your name for Your good and even, Lord, not selfishly, but for our enjoyment. 
We thank You that You've given us the ministry of Christ. That You've called us to be ambassadors. That You allow us the honor to show love and affection, care and support to one another, to do Your work in this world. Keep calling us to it, Lord. With great patience, keep calling us to it. Don't give up on us. Help us to step into each task with great thankfulness and desire. Knowing that it's You who provide results and accomplishes the task and it's us who get the benefit of seeing You work. We love You, Lord. We want You and Your Gospel to have complete sway over us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.